The Disciplined Investor is underwritten by Interactive Brokers. Interactive Brokers charges USD margin loan rates from 0.75% to 1.59%. Rates, of course, are subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com slash compare. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Hey, we got some crashing consumer confidence. New market highs, even in Australia. And markets are living la vida covid Nothing bothers it. Let's just keep on hitting highs. All this and much more on episode number 727 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Bait the hook. Complacency eye-popping, and jumper cables. What do all these have in common? Hmm? No, no, no. They're not Stephen King thrillers. <laughs> Their titles in some of the more recent TDI podcasts. And we had some fun doing it, didn't we? We learned a lot all the time from all of this as we go through the dynamics of the market, what's happening from an economic standpoint, a fundamental standpoint, all of that. Hey, a quick intro before I go any further. Hey, I'm Andrew Horowitz, and I'm the host of this long-running podcast, as well as the co-host of DH Unplugged. Myself, John C. Devore, get together every Tuesday evening at 9 p.m. sharp. We're live streaming. Also, of course, you can get the podcast in recorded format over at any of your favorite podcast sites, uh, repositories, the apps, wherever you get your favorite favorite podcast. We talk about a lot of interesting things there, too. Well, you know, it seems like for a lot of people, there's this craziness abound. This world has gone upside down, maybe pear-shaped to a degree, and you know what? I can't disagree. However, what is really interesting right now, it seems that the world, from an economic view alone, really not getting any further than that, than that, I'm just talking about the economic view, is learning to live with the pandemic. No matter how much it really sparks up, causes problems, it seems that, that everybody's okay with that from an economic standpoint, even though there's some scares, even though there's a talk about lockdowns in this area, port closures in that area, the potential for people to start masking up, staying at home, slowing down their travel. That's kind of good, right? I mean, if you think about it, wow, we can live in a world as nuts as it is right now with a pandemic that's raging out of control in certain areas and other areas that are getting better. I mean, we're seeing great things from the market as an example, right? 
I mean, think about it for a moment that we have Australia, where about 50% of the population is under strict. I'm, I'm not talking about, hey, would you do us a favor and please? No, I'm talking about strict lockdowns. But the economy seems to be doing just fine. The stock market is at an all-time high. And again, that's really confusing. Because how, how does that... How does that work? How do you have a catastrophe of epic proportions and at the same time seems that you have a risk on appetite for pretty much every single level of, of, of asset? And at the same time, people who you would think would be kind of fearful, reserved, pulled back, held back are saying, hey, you know what? Yeah. Let's invest. Look, it's all about the ideas of what's going on in certain part of the markets that are really showing this. It's all about the idea that there is incredible amounts of stimulus. As a matter of fact, over the weekend, India announced a $1.5 trillion, $1.5 trillion. And think about the size of that economy and what that means in the pay, pay scale over there compared to here, when we're talking about a $1.5 trillion here, $2 trillion here. A $1.5 trillion infrastructure deal. Interesting that once again, we're starting to see that when we have things like central banks doing bond buying through quantitative easing, we're starting to see other countries that do the same thing and continue along in the footsteps of what the U.S. has done, regardless of the financial stability of their economies. But everybody's accepting of all of this. And now we have a situation where India, as an example, and other countries around the world are starting to say, you know, okay, it wasn't enough that we rescued the system. It wasn't enough that we stabilized the financial inner workings, the individuals, made sure that people had money in their pocket, food on the table. No, it's not enough that we do that and get us back to where we should be from an economic standpoint in the face of this horrible situation for everybody on a personal and a health basis. No, that's not enough. We need to go one step further because you know what? Why should we waste such a great opportunity where people are like, yeah, hey, go for it. And what we're seeing is that the amount of money that's allowed to be added to the, the systems, the global marketplace, the global economy, is really providing a substantial amount of a backdrop. So that's really what's going on. I, I mean, if you want to take just, you know, first level swipe at all this, it's the liquidity, it's the excess of money to the system. Could you imagine if we didn't have that, what are we looking like now? Wow. That'd be very difficult to even sketch that out to see what the world would look like from a financial economic standpoint, what the markets would look like. But the markets themselves also are really important to look at right now. And I was thinking about this because, again, a lot of people are, are asking me questions, are posing issues to me, everyday life from other colleagues to listeners like you to friends and family about their level of confusion. And the, and, and the level of confusion is not getting any better. They're just getting used to it. But when we talk about markets, the big issue is what are we actually talking about? That's what we really need to 
get to the bottom of. Markets. The markets are at all-time high. And what are we talking about? The Dow Jones, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, the Russell. What are we talking about? And we've discussed this concept. I want to remind you of it again because I think it's really important to wrap yourself around what it is that we're talking about and what it is that they're pumping, discussing on the various shows, the media, the newspapers, because it's all about cap-weighted. Somewhere along the line, the powers that be that came up with the index uh, construction, the construction of the various forms of the way to look at stocks, decided, hey, you know what? The best way to track this is a cap-weighted index where we have certain stocks that have a much greater weight overall, as opposed to looking at the market as an equal-weighted or an averaging mechanism. So when we look at what's happening with the S&P 500 as an example, are we really looking at what's happening with the 500 stocks that underlie that index, or is it weighted so dramatically towards the upper end of the large mega caps, the super duper mega caps, if you will, the Facebooks, the Microsofts, the Googles of the world. Is that really the market? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, let's not, let's not outsmart ourselves here. That is the market. However, you have to realize also that as we are going down the road of technology and enhancements there and money pushed into the system and a lot of people concentrating their wealth into many of these names due to a lot of reasons. One of them being the safety of it or the perceived safety of a cash cow with a solid balance sheet with the ability to borrow at extremely low costs. But as we are increasing the value of these mega caps, they attract more money. As they attract more money, they grow larger, of course. And what happens is you have the ability for these companies to do share buybacks at low interest rates. And that, in effect, keeps their earnings growing because it does impact their earnings per share. And that, again, looks to be a better fundamental backdrop, and then more money flows into them, and that results in what, of course, we know as the broadening increase in valuation of the underlying index, specifically those like the Dow Jones Industrial, excuse me, not the Dow Jones, because I'm going to get to that in a second, the uh, S&P 500, the NASDAQ, the Russell. Now, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is a price-weighted, which is weird, uh, a price-weighted index where we take the prices of a stock and we weight it. I still wonder why we are all fascinated and desirous of tracking an index by any specific weighting. It makes no sense. If you have an index of a certain number of stocks that meet a certain criteria, for example, market cap below $1 billion, we'll call that micro caps right now. That being the case, why are you going to weight that? Let's look at the average, what the average is doing, because the average is what people hold normally. They don't, they don't, when you construct a portfolio, I would I would be hard-pressed to believe that anybody that is doing this is going out and market cap-weighting your own portfolio. I just don't see that. 
What I see is that, yes, of course, you could buy ETFs, mutual funds, et cetera, that do that for you. But when you are constructing your own portfolio, does there any relevance really to a market cap weighted index? Now, that doesn't mean that the, the, the averaging index or the equal weighted index is going to have that much of a differential between what you have in the market cap at any given time. But there are those moments in time where you see it pull away dramatically and when those large caps really play a major role. Now, I talked about this idea of a safety trade a few, a few episodes ago. I mentioned it a moment ago. And the safety trade is something different. You know, this high, whole idea of moving towards the largest companies and the, the ultra mega caps with really good financials behind them. And, and of course, all of this is a big part of how investors are viewing things right now. The idea that it's very, very difficult to break the back of what these companies are going to do now and into the future. Different from, for let's say, what has happened in China. China is effectively going after many of these companies, which is, in theory, unheard of to do the same thing here in the U.S. Could it happen? Maybe. They're starting to hear murmurs on Capitol Hill about break up this company, look into that company, stop some of the mergers, acquisitions. There's a lot of undertone right now about big company, bad, 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 big company, monopoly. Oh, my, the little guy gets hurt. Then eh, You know what? There's some degree of truth to that. There really is. But how much when it comes to the idea that what is the trade-off? While there may be a little bit of stifling of some business in the world when it comes to companies where they're buying up all of the companies around them, possibly to enhance what their own product line is or to cut out competition. But what what's the trade-off? The benefit now. You know my thoughts on Facebook. I don't really think there's any redeeming qualities of something like that. A Microsoft, a Google, totally different. So when we're looking at the idea that there are potentials for a breakup, I don't think so here in the U.S. But where we are right now is something we really need to focus on, even with these large caps. Because when we peel back the onion, the layers upon layers of what's going on in the world right now in terms of the markets and why things are doing what they're doing and how there is this incredible benefit to world markets and to economics and to individual personal wealth, if we really get down to the core of what it is, I think we're going to find that there's an exceptional amount of debt. Yes, debt, personal and corporate and government that's really fueling all of this. That's really, I mean, I don't think anybody could deny that when we look at the balance sheet of the Fed, which has gone up by $4.5 trillion in the last year, the same amount that was built up from the financial crisis to just before the pandemic economy broke. And that's going to be all well and good, just fine, until we see one downgrade. So we the downgrade of corporate debt, that there's an 
overabundance of use, that there's an inability for a company, a major name, to in the foreseeable future to keep up with their debt service for a significant economy, the sovereign debt to be knocked down. But the probabilities, by the way, of this, eh, not so good. Rating services know the thin ice that everybody is now walking across when it comes to the amount of debt that they have. They understand that if, in fact, they do start downgrading significantly the sovereign debt or even corporate debt from some important companies, you could have a major cataclysmic, cataclysmic market event. That's how thin of a, of a, of a level of ice that everybody is kind of dancing on right now. That's something that worries me. It's not that, oh, it keeps me up at night. No, I sleep just fine. We know that our clients are in pretty good shape in terms of how we've diversified. That's our belief, at least. But yeah, I do worry about, hey, well, what happens if, and how does that somehow affect what we're doing and how our finances are, what will happen with markets if, in fact, there is a significant break in the debt markets. And I don't think that's so far-fetched. And I'm sure you don't either. The idea of a break of the financial markets due to some kind of debt issue, I think is real. Is it some kind of a major war, possibly, that does something terrible? I mean, on one hand, we're in a war. We're in a global war. We're in World War III right now when it comes to this pandemic. So we're not fighting each other. We're fighting something else. But the impact in a re weird way is kind of the same. We have a wartime economy. We're ramping up all sorts of areas to combat something. Now, with where we are today, with where we are with regard to the amount of debt outstanding and the impact on markets and the benefit that we've seen, the valuation expansion. A lot of people are asking, hey, are we at a top? I'm not exactly sure what that means. <laughs> what does that actually mean? Are we at a top forever? Are we at a near-term top, an intermediate top, a short-term top? Are we at a top that is going to signify a major crash? That's what people are always looking for, right? More likely than not, we, we went through some of these statistics a few episodes back. The idea of a crash, unlikely event to happen, but yet it does happen. What I mean by that is, generally speaking, what we find is that there is a significant amount of potential for over time, over a 10-year, 20-year period, for a crash to be in there somewhere or another, for some reason or another, that is usually different from the last time. And then we see a recovery. More often than not, stock markets, if you look at history, have done pretty well. But there are those times. The problem is, if you're one of those people that's always looking for a crash that you know there's a market high where we are right now, I don't want to put my money to work, and you know what? The reason is because I know there's a crash coming somewhere. Meanwhile, this is what I always find funny about this. You've heard me talk about this. How many times have I said this? Meanwhile... Mark goes up, I don't know, 15% over the next six months. You're out of the market. Then we have a 10, 12% pullback. You're like, I knew it. And you're still behind on the deal. So are we on a top? I mean, if you do look at some of the things and some of the 
underlying fundamentals, you may say it's getting kind of close, right? Well, we've talked about this. We talked about peak earnings. We talked about peak economic growth. We talked about peak stimulus. We talked about how much, how much lower, I mean, really, seriously, how much lower can interest rates go? You may say, Andrew, what, what do you mean? They can go negative. All right, I got that. They can go negative. Yeah, okay, great. But will they go negative? What I mean by that is I understand that the, 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 the tools or the, the mechanisms are there for negative interest rates. But we really haven't seen that much benefit from the negative interest rates from other countries around the world. As a matter of fact, what happens is they get stuck in that mired gook of never-ending low interest rates. Look what happened in Japan and Europe. I mean, is it working? I, I don't think so. And I don't think that our government or Fed is really willing to go, at least right now, for the foreseeable future, towards that side. It's kind of the dark side of finance. I don't think they're really willing to do that because then it leaves them less and less opportunity to do something even further if there really is something that is a significant economic break. And with the knowledge that you can't get away from low rates, I mean, look what happens to markets when you have a move up in rates, even towards the 2% range, which is historically even below average for the 10-year treasury. But look when you get even near that, there's a spooking effect right now because everybody is so used to having low rates to fund everything that's going on. And the inability to get low rates is something that's very substantial for governments as well as companies because their debt service costs so much more. And that, that is when you could see sovereign debt being knocked, where you see the rating services coming in and downgrading corporate debt because they just can't issue at the same level. Now, one of the things that we saw that I think was really revealing this week in particular, as a matter of fact, I'll go so far as saying shocking, stunning, was a report that was out on Friday. And our friends over at briefing.com, they covered this, of course, and I'm just going to go through what this was. But this report in particular, because if you remember, we talk about the idea of the markets having a lot of bedrock as a foundation, but yet it's built on an ever-growing level of confidence. Confidence that sometime in the future, the market will be higher. Sometime future, economics will be better. Sometime in the future, we're going to see better salaries, better economic times ahead. And we see a report like this that I'm going to go through right now. I find this very, very interesting and something we really need to perk up about and look at to understand what does this actually mean. Now, in a world that there is unlimited amounts of money that come into the markets on a regular basis through various uh, stimulus programs or low interest, whatever you want to call it, but the ongoing push of liquidity to the markets, it means less. However, it's still a problem because the preliminary University of Michigan uh, consumer confidence level came out and August showed a decline to 70.2. A shocking decline, in fact, 
Consensus estimates were about 81, and the final reading of 81.2 for July was there, but you're talking about an 11-point decline. That's below the April 2020 low of 71.8, and one of the largest monthly declines over the past 50 years. Half a century. 50 years. 10 decades. However you want to look at it. Now, according to briefing, the key takeaway from the report is that the, the plunge in consumer sentiment wasn't just related to concerns about the Delta variant, which is probably what you were thinking. That, well, you know, people are getting a little nervous with all the news that's out there about the Delta variant, what's going on. But in fact, it was all linked to pretty much every aspect of the economy. And when you dig deep into the report, they said that the personal finances um, area to uh, prospects about the economy, including inflation and unemployment, were all targeted. And the deterioration in sentiment was also seen, and this is what's really fascinating, across income, age, education subgroups, and observed, again, across all regions. So the current economic conditions index fell to 77 from 84. The expectations index, which is what people are looking for in the future, dropped to 65.2 from 79. The expected year ahead inflation slipped down to 4.6 from uh, 4.7. And the five-year inflation expectations rate moved to 3% from 2.8. We've got to look at this a little more closely. Now, Markets didn't seem to care very much about this, aside from the immediate drop in rates and the slump in the U.S. dollar on the print. And remember, markets are really jumping at every economic report. But many of these have been just momentary. Many of the moves that we see in the markets down um, on a report have pretty much been, well, uh, three minutes long. But I think this report is concerning. And I want to go through this and, and really kind of dig down into this. Because especially that it's not related necessarily to, to the Delta variant or the, the resurgence of the pandemic. But at first, before we do that, I want to talk about portfolio analyst. Now, you heard me talk about this before. This portfolio analyst is powered by interactive brokers. And what it does is it helps sophisticated investors understand the health of their complete financial portfolio. Portfolio analyst is free and easy to use. Basically, it's personal finance software, right, that simply creates a consolidated view of banking, brokerage, and credit card accounts. I mean, it's powerful, but beautiful in its simplicity. Now, you can compare your consolidated portfolio against more than 200 benchmarks or create customized benchmarks for analyzing performance. In addition, you can calculate time and money-weighted rates of return and use portfolio analyst for, well... Yeah, this is important. Forecasting. You could do forecasting to get a glimpse of the future. Sign up for free at PortfolioAnalyst.com. Where were we? Yeah, confidence. Confidence. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that I've been talking about confidence for a while. I mentioned that a lot. And I want to go back to this discussion right now because I, I really think we need to reflect on the importance of having confidence in something, in a market, in this particular circumstance. Because when you think about confidence, 
That's pretty much all we have when it comes to our markets, right? What about the U.S. dollar? What's that backed by? Well, it's backed by the full faith and credit. The full faith, full faith, faith, confidence. Another word, right? Confidence that something's there. Faith that something's there. Whether it's religious or backing in this case. Confidence in the system. In the backing. Confidence there'll be a future of blank. I am confident that there will be a future in Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, the dollar as a stable currency, the uh, ability for our economy to do better. Confidence in blank, right? But once that confidence bubble is pierced, how does it resolve? What happens? We're starting to see a little bit of that right now when it comes to the consumer confidence numbers that we saw, and that could be a major issue. For example, if there's high confidence that I'll have my job in a year from now and I'll continue to, I guess, earn more and more over that period of time, I'm happy to spend, right? I'll be, hey, you know what? I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Because I know that not, not only do I have money right now and I have a job and I have earnings and I have income and I have stability, but I have the confidence that not only am I going to have it now, but in the future, therefore, I can spend freely. If I'm not confident that I will be safe in an indoor space against a virus, I'm going to stay away. Now, all of this trickles up and down the economy. You know, you could make any kind of scenario there, but it's again, it's all about confidence about something, whether it's your personal, your financial health, about your future, about your family, whatever it may be, it's all interrelated. But what's happening right now is something's worrying people. Something's getting under their skin and causing them to say, you know what? I am a little bit worried about the future. When we look at the the report again, when we kind of dig down into the details and we find that the expectations index dropped to 65.2 from 79, that is an eye opener. Again, I know that markets didn't really care too much about it because they're more consumed about where the rate of treasuries are right now and how much money will be approved to put into an infrastructure program, whether it's uh, building roads or bridges or the human... <laughs> the human infrastructure program that they're trying to build this as. But this move across the board, all regions, all ages, all aspects of the, of the group that is reporting, and I'm sure there'll be some discrediting going on about how the index is compiled because no one wants this to be the case. We'll tweak it a little bit. Or we'll discredit it somehow. That's going to be the next thing you're going to find with this. But the biggest move in the expectations index from 79 to 65, that's not now. That's not about how I feel today. It's how I, how I feel about my potential economics and my finances and my situation into the future. Let's say a year from now. And again, I want you just for a moment to think about that. If you have a much lower view of your future, how does that impact you? What do you do? You know, if you have a really terrible view of your circumstances right now, but your future expectations are pretty bright, 
They're like, you know, things suck right now. I don't have a job. I don't have a house. Uh, I'm renting. My car payment is too much. Things are just horrible right now. But you know what? I really do believe I'm going to get a job in the future. It's one thing. If you think things are really good right now, but you're really concerned about the next several months and what's going to happen over the next year, let's say, you may recoil a bit and say, you know what? I'm going to hold back. And that's my concern from this report. And you got to wonder if one of the things that's happening is that people are saying to themselves and maybe even suggesting that they're thinking, well, maybe this is as good as it gets. And I can go along with that. I don't know what your thoughts are. Think about that. Is that, are we at a point where is as good as it gets? I mean, not forever, right? But we did come a long way over a very short period of time. And maybe we can keep these levels for some time. Possibly that's what some people in the survey are thinking. Maybe that's what you're thinking. That here we are in a situation where we just got through some of the worst situations we've seen in our lifetimes. And it's been resolved. And how much better can you get? If everything goes back to quote unquote normal, is it going to be better? We're not going to have all that stimulus. We're not going to have those low rates. Maybe what we saw was a perfect storm of a, of a horrible health global pandemic that was mixed with massive amounts of money that just offset that too much money to a degree that really didn't only bring us back to where we should be if it was no such thing as a pandemic that ever entered the vocabulary of anyone or any news station, if we didn't have to see those awful counts and these terrible situations and friends and family sick and dying, if we didn't have that and just erase that from history, which is kind of what they're trying to do on an economic front. But if that's what we're trying to do and that's what they did, and we extract that entirely and we go back to where things were, how could it be as good as it is now? So maybe people are thinking that, as good as it gets, as good as it got. And I think it's very possible. And not only about the, the markets, which is a bright product of this discussion, but it's maybe it's as good as it gets with my salary, my job, my overall situation. And again, what do people do with that? How do they change their behaviors one of the things that they do clearly is they slow down maybe a touch on spending. Maybe they rethink long-term purchases. Maybe they save a little more. Do you find yourself doing that? I can tell when I'm, for whatever reason, starting to smell that maybe in the future things are not going to be so bright because I, I kind of do some strange things. I remember one time in 2007, where I saw this market crash that was straight ahead of us, you know, about to happen. Hadn't happened yet, but things were getting pretty ugly. And I looked around, and I started to pace my office one day. As things were starting to get weird in the markets and the economy, and we started, these, started to see all this bubble up, I started to walk around and with a pad of paper in my hand. I'm not kidding about this. And I started looking around the office at all the different things that we had in the office that were not 
necessary to run the business. Absolutely. For example, crazy, but a water cooler. We get the jugs. Remember the old day water cooler? You get the jugs. They delivered. It was like 35 bucks a month. I'm like, you know what? I don't see any reason why we need that. And I walked around a little more and I looked at the stamp machine. I'm like, you know what? Why do we have that stamp machine? Is there a better one we can get that's cheaper? And you know what? We replaced that and got one at a lower cost. And this went on for a little while. And what did I end up doing? Well, maybe I said we have cable TV at the office. Nobody's really watching it. Let's cut it back to maybe only the barest of minimum channels that we need in the office. And I went through all that. And maybe, I don't know, I saved $80 a month or something like that or $150 a month. But the fact is that that is what happens. And today, maybe you're going to look at all the different subscriptions you have for your HBO Max and your cable and your TV, your internet. Well, maybe not the internet. Nobody's going to slow. You don't want slower internet, do you? No. Uh, possibly a car, maybe a hold on to a car for a bit longer. These are the things that people do when they have a reduced view of the future. And we're not seeing that show up right now too much in the economy. But next week, we're going to have a peak at retail sales and some housing numbers as well. That will be a reasonable indication of what people are thinking. And we have to look at those reports moving forward. And then we have to ask the obvious question. Does any of that matter anyway? And I've been thinking about that a great deal lately. Does any of this really matter? When I say any of this, I'm not talking about the big any of this. I'm talking about, do economics even matter anymore and should we pay attention? Or is that an old man's game? Is that an old school theory that, you know what, uh, markets and economies are somehow connected? Because the disconnect that we see is real. When we look back or even look currently at something like the thought that Australia is in a lockdown, that many businesses aren't open, that there's a huge unemployment problem there. And yet there's been a massive move in risk asset prices incredible to all-time highs. I mean, how does that square? How do you even make any sense out of the fact that we have a country in a lockdown, yet their markets are raging higher? So I've been thinking about this. You know, what's this all about? How does this happen? Without getting too much in a rant about with the Fed and, you know, that none of this matters at a time when money is free and being heaped upon all of us, Let's think about prices for a minute. Let's think about prices. I mean, think about if you have, I don't know, a dollar in your hand and you were buying a pack of gum, let's say. And let's assume that that pack of gum was 30 cents. You may think about, well, maybe I should look for a better value. That's 30% of what I have to spend, and I'm not sure I want to spend that. If you have 50000 in your hand, the $1 you know, the gum at 30 cents or a dollar, two dollars isn't even a big deal. In other words, what I'm saying to you is it's all a matter of perspective of how much you're willing to pay for something, right? 
Even if the price moved to two dollars and you have fifty thousand in your hand right there and said you could spend a few dollars, all right, who cares? I'll buy the gum for two dollars. I want some gum. All right, no big deal. I'm not gonna look for a bargain. I'm not gonna look to haggle. I'm not gonna go to another store. I'm not gonna search around. And I'm not gonna wait. I want it now. The same thing kind of is happening today. I know that was a little weird about the gum, but think about it. You know, you have a certain amount of money in your hand and you have want to buy things and you kind of kind of look at that and say, okay, well, what can I buy? Well, now we are having a major wealth impact, wealth effect that was created during a time that many were actually acting like it's La Vida COVID. Like they come out unscathed. And in fact, better for it. It's crazy, right? But it's true. We have a situation where there was so much money created, so much wealth created over the last year or so in a time that people thought they were facing an uncertain and absolute potential for a near-term death, possibly, that now they're into the roaring 20s to a degree. This wealth effect, again, living La Vida COVID, that was one of the best things that ever happened. Twisted, that may be, by the way, twisted commentary. But all too real. All too real. People got money from PPP programs, unemployment programs, loans at extraordinary low rates. I get it. There was a lot of need out there. There's no question about it. But we're talking about big numbers to some extent. And what's happening now is people are willing to pay up. This is another reason why we see inflation picking up. Not because of what we see traditionally happening, Right? Traditionally, we look at, well, there's a concern for prices that are going to be higher in the future. I better buy something now because uh, I don't want to pay higher money in the future for it. No. With that $50,000 in your hand, you have less of a concern about what it costs at all. Just buy it. Just buy it. That's why the used car market, which is a supply-demand issue, of course, and boats and recreational vehicles— and other areas of the economy are seeing massive moves on prices. No one cares about what things cost. They want it. They want it now. Let me have it. I got the money. Who cares? Even at a time when there's online shopping and comparison shopping available, we're seeing, I think, a lot more compulsive buying that's going on that is driving prices. So then we have to ask, do fundamentals and economics and stock prices need to be aligned? Or is this just all one giant pool of BS? And I think if you're a true fundamentalist, yes. I dedicated a chapter in my book, The Disciplined Investor, Essential Strategies for Success, available on audio through audible.com. Yeah, I, I put a whole chapter on that. I also put a chapter on quantitative investing. I put a chapter on technical investing or charting. And it's important to understand the three pillars. These three, as I see it, at least of investing and how to utilize each quanta funda techna. Because yes, there are times that one or the other works. Sometimes all three work. Sometimes only two. Sometimes a piece of each. More likely than not, over time, I see all three working in hand in hand together to provide you for good investment um, you know, research and the ability to really dig down and understand of what's happening. 
But when we look at where we are in the question of, you know, do economics matter? Do fundamentals matter? Does anything matter right now? Do we just hang it up and say, oh, the hell with it. Just put it all in. Capitulate into the fact that, you know what? The powers that be are not going to let markets go down. We see it in Japan where they're buying directly into their markets. We see it all around the world. I think that there is something to be said about that right now, and that is why you have to have a, a ability to bob and weave and move and groove, depending on the situation that's going on. And right now, the situation is very clear to everyone, right? Do things matter? Yeah, they matter. Of course they matter. They matter over the long term. Unless you're investing for today or tomorrow or next week, yes, they all matter. But there are other things that are involved in the markets as well. And the confidence that we have right now that has been brought to us and renewed by the fact that governments had our back during this time when confidence slipped down dramatically during the first part of the pandemic, revived, revitalized, now starting to see these major moves to the downside that is not necessarily related to just the pandemic, that is so broad and ranging from regions and economic stature and age, gender, this is a big concern. Now, when I talk about big concerns... I'm not talking about a market crash. I'm not talking about tomorrow something's going to happen. These are things that you need to wake up to when you're developing and managing your portfolio, which is what we talk about all the time. The disciplines, the disciplined investor, the discipline involved in managing your portfolio to properly allocate the assets. Another piece of information just came. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? He's going to say, who cares? Maybe if you have a very bright, if you do have a very bright and, and rosy view of the future, you may just say, who cares? Just invest. Or if you just don't care and you're complacent, which we talked about also. But the three pillars are what can kind of help drive you to the right uh, conclusions where you have quantitative analysis, which is the filtering and the screening gathering information quickly on data sets. And you have the fundamental analysis, which allows you to peek under the hood to see a company itself and look at management and look at all the different ratios and understand what it takes for a successful company, compare that and see if that company has it. Technical, charting, timing. It gives you understanding of accumulation and distribution of a symbol, of a stock, of the futures, of an ETF, whatever it may be, of a sector. Blend all of them. Because sometimes one's in favor and one style's not. Right now, it's all about momentum. Not even something we talked about here, although that in itself is more so slanted towards the technical analysis and charting. Momentum is extremely powerful right now. We see that in the short squeeze movements that we've seen, the, the buy the dips. Anytime you start hearing buy the dip all the time and you see that there's been an unsuccessful attempt to break down markets or better said that the sellers really weren't there when selling started and therefore buyers stepped in and held up the markets, that's all about momentum and charting. 
And right now we haven't seen a correction of more than a few percent in the last year on the major indices, which we've talked about and all about the market capitalization aspect of that. We've seen it on some of the small caps. We've seen it on areas around the world. Clearly, things like China's internet-related and China stocks. But generally speaking, right now, there is such a high level of confidence. And we'll see if this consumer confidence drags and starts impacting and infecting investor confidence. That's going to be the real tell and really the bottom line to all of this. It, is there a inexorable tie, a absolute relationship over time with the fundamentals, the economics, and stock prices. That's going to be something to watch very closely. All right, we're going to end it right there. I want to thank everybody. I hope you're having a great summer. Are you having a great summer? I hope you're having a great summer. If you're not having a great summer, get out there and have a great summer. Get yourself some lobster or something. I don't know. Get yourself a piece of fish. Grill it. Get yourself a piece of meat, a hamburger, a hot dog, something, some sausages. Do something. A little sauce and peppers in the summer. Mm. Ah, the Feast of San Gennaro, sauce and peppers in New York. I think it's in September sometime. Love that. Clams on the half shell. Yummy, yummy. Do something. Have some fun. If you're in the camp of finding yourself pretty... Well, downbeat and downstruck and upset and nervous, and that's okay. Don't let it, in fact, impact your life. Go out and do something with the ones you love. Hey, thanks for joining me again this week on the Disciplined Investor Podcast. We'll be around next week with a great guest, the founder of White Charts. Tune in. Be there. Thanks so much. See you then. discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company. 